Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. Uh, color blindness is a medical condition that affects the cone cells of the eye. Uh, that's the part of the eye responsible for the interpretation of color. And when one or more of the, the three different types of cone cells in the eye are damaged, it can make it difficult for a person to distinguish between different types of color. Uh, the condition isn't incredibly common, but it's, I think, probably common enough that you have known someone who's colorblind before. Uh, the ability to distinguish between color is something that I think you're prone to take for granted until you know someone who's colorblind. Then you see just how much the ability to distinguish between different colors can affect your daily life. Uh, back in Nashville, for instance, I had a friend uh, who was colorblind. And I remember him telling me one time how he had to have his wife check the color of his socks before he left for church in the morning. And how when he or she left town, his choice of clothing uh, became rather interesting. And this is the type of thing that you never think about when you can see the full color spectrum. It never even occurs to you that your ability to distinguish a, a difference between one pair of socks and another uh, depends on your color vision. But for those who lack that ability, they're acutely aware of it. That said, most people won't realize that they're colorblind until someone tells them. And that's because colorblindness is a genetic condition. Meaning in most instances, it's a condition that someone has from birth. And so a person won't recognize that they can't see red colors, for instance, because they don't necessarily know that there is such a thing as red. It just looks like another shade of green. And that's all the color red has ever look like to them. They don't know any different. And it's for this reason that a test has been developed to distinguish colorblindness. It's called the Ishihara test and again I'd imagine that you've all seen it before. I know when I was in grade school they'd even have us take the test at school. We'd be sent down to the school nurse one day and, and she'd give us a hearing test and she'd check our vision and then she'd have us look at these cards with all these different sized dots on them. And the dots were in two different shades of color. And the way these cards were set up, there'd be a number written in the middle in one shade of dots. And then, of course, the background of the card was in a, another shade. Again, I'm assuming you guys have all seen that before you know what I'm talking about. And this is pretty common. Anyways, the idea is that a colorblind person is going to have trouble distinguishing between these two different types of color. And so when the school nurse asks them to read the number on the card, they can't do it. All they see is the same shade of color. And that's how they find out that they're colorblind. Someone shows them one of these cards and asks them, can you see the number here? And when they say no, the nurse or the doctor tells them, well, there's a number written in that circle. And if you could distinguish between green and red, for instance, you could see it. What's sort of interesting about these tests is that even if you can see color, <laughs> they can be sort of hard to pass. Now, to my knowledge, I'm not colorblind. I've always passed these tests when they've been administered to me. And yet I have to admit, sometimes when I look at the card, I have to look sort of close to see the number. I mean, it's there. It's just hard to distinguish. Well, this morning's passage is sort of like that. There's something in this morning's passage that if I don't point it out to you, I think you might not see it. And if you don't see it, I think you're going to miss the significance of what Paul is doing here. So let's go ahead and read this morning's passage, and I'm going to try to point it out to you. But just as a heads up, you're going to need to listen closely. You see, what I'm going to describe to you is something... That Christians can understand, but it's something that the world has a very, very hard time grasping. 
If I could put it this way, if, if I were to compare what I'm about to say to one of those Ishihara test cards, then I think unbelievers generally lack the ability to see this shade of meaning in their Bibles. Meaning the idea is there, it's in the text, but they're probably never going to see it on their own when they read their Bible. Apart from the Spirit of God, they lack the, the spiritual cone cells to pick up this distinction on their own. They're colorblind to the issue. Now, like the colorblind, they may be made aware of their colorblindness by someone who sees it. They can have the idea of red described to them, in a sense. But apart from that, it's not something they'll pick up on their own. And not only that, but even if you can see the full color spectrum, I think this is still an idea that you have to kind of squint a bit to see. Again, it's there. In fact, I think once you see it, you'll realize it's all over the place. However, even still, it's still close enough to some, uh, some other ideas that even people who can see it naturally can have a very hard time distinguishing it, and they'll often confuse it for another shade of meaning. And again, that's problematic. Because if you don't see it in this passage, then I think you'll miss the significance of what Paul's doing here. So what is this elusive, nuanced idea that I keep hinting at? Once again, let's read the passage, and I'll try to describe it for you. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In last week's message, I said that the central theme of this letter is worldliness. I said that Christ has set us apart from the world, that he's called us to be holy and distinct from the world, while at the same time leaving us in the world so that we can engage it for the sake of the gospel. This includes living according to a set of priorities that are different from the world, which priorities we receive as our thinking is renewed by the truths that we find in the scripture. In the words of Paul from Romans 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing of, uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I said that the Corinthians are struggling with this idea. That while they do believe in the gospel, that their thinking is still very worldly. It's unreformed. And the result is that there's all kind of worldly behavior that's being lived out in the church. They're not living as a subculture in their society with a very distinct and separate way of life. Instead, they're living just like the world. They and the world, I said, are getting along just fine. And I said that this is incredibly helpful for us because we too are living in a time and place where the church and the world also seem to be getting along with one another quite fine. It would appear that the church is increasingly falling under the influence of the world, and so I said this letter can be helpful to us in demonstrating what, where the world's way of thinking is affecting our thinking. It can help us to distinguish between the world's priorities and Christ's priorities. And by making this distinction, it can help us both identify and turn away from the world's influence in our life. Now, as we encounter today's passage, we don't necessarily know what that influence looks like just yet in the life of the Corinthians. Meaning, I can't show you from this passage what type of thinking was affecting the Corinthian church. Last week, of course, we looked at Paul's opening greetings in the letter. Just a moment ago, I read the thanksgiving that Paul reports to the Corinthians, which is actually a fairly standard element in Paul's letters. Paul hasn't really begun to address the Corinthians' problems just yet. That begins in our next passage, down in verse 10, when Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's Paul's opening salvo against this germ of worldly thinking and the havoc that it is wreaking in the church. He begins by addressing the disunity that it's causing in the body of Christ. But just from what we have laid out right here in today's passage, we don't know yet what that line of thinking looks like, what's causing it. But as Paul writes this letter, he knows. After all, he's writing this letter as a response to that worldliness. And so even though he hasn't identified the issues for us just yet, it's still on his, minds, his mind as he writes these words. That said, I can't stand up here and tell you the degree to which Paul is already addressing the worldly mindset in this thanksgiving. On the one hand, this is a pretty standard element in Paul's writing, so maybe when he tells the Corinthians that he's thankful for them, maybe all he's meaning to communicate is just that, that he's thankful for them and why. On the other hand, as I pointed out last week, Paul appears to craft often even his introductions to the topics that he's about to address. So maybe Paul is intentionally trying to do two things here. Maybe he's trying to tell the Corinthians why he's thankful while at the same time demonstrating the type of thinking that the Corinthians should be employing in the church. It's not entirely clear. However, regardless of whether or not Paul is meaning to contrast his way of thinking with the Corinthians, what we can discern from this Thanksgiving is that Paul's way of thinking is vastly, vastly different from theirs. And I'll tell you, personally, I think that's intentional. There's a theme that's dripping through each and every line of this Thanksgiving, and I can't simply think that it's an accident. It would seem as if there's a point that Paul's trying to make here, even as he issues this Thanksgiving. Or to put it another way, I think Paul is crafting his Thanksgiving to anticipate many of the problems that he's about to address in this letter. I don't know if you recall, but last week I ended my sermon with a reading from Matthew 5. The passage, of course, comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in it, Jesus reminds his listeners that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt was a purifying agent in the Old Testament, thus Jesus seems to be pointing to the fact that so far from being made like the world, God has called his people to be holy and to even purify the world with their holiness. That's what Jesus means when he says, If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The idea is that if God calls a people and sets them apart in order to purify the earth, and then they themselves stop being holy, then what's the point? I mean, they're not going to purify anything at that point, and so they're completely worthless. They're not going to fulfill their calling. The light element in that passage points to the wisdom and the understanding that they're supposed to bring to the earth. Not only are they to purify the earth, but they're to bring light to it. And they do this through the righteousness of their actions in particular. Jesus says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that God's people are supposed to live in such a way, both that others are able to see their good works and that they end up glorifying their Father who is in heaven. Now, I think the second element in that passage, that part about the light, that's tricky. In fact, as I was reflecting on this passage over the past couple of weeks, it's occurred to me, that I think I've actually taught this passage wrongly before and on several occasions. The mistake has been subtle, but nonetheless, it's been a mistake and it's an important one. The way I've taught this passage and the way I've taught others like it at times is to say that when the church begins living like Jesus and loving one another, that it's then that the gospel becomes really appealing. 
I've done this before in the book of Acts especially. I've pointed out that it wasn't the signs that really got Israel's attention, but rather the church's love for one another. And I've said something to the effect that when people begin to live according to the laws of the kingdom, that that is when they begin to say, how do I get in on that? How do I become a part of that? I want to be a part of that type of a kingdom, that kind of a community. And that may be true. The world may find themselves attracted to the church when this happens, but if they are, I'd actually argue that they're being attracted for the wrong reasons. They're missing the point. Listen closely once again. What are people supposed to be attracted to when they see the good works of Jesus' disciples? Is it the love and the community that they enjoy with one another? No, what does he say? He says, let your light Shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what? He says, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see what's happening here? What's happening as a result of the good works? What, or rather, who are the people delighting in? And the answer is God. They see the good works and they delight in God. This is why Jesus uses the the light analogy once again. Light, of course, points to the idea of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding. I mean, even in our own culture, uh, you look at like cartoons, for instance, right? And if they want to illustrate that someone has an idea, what's the classic image they use? The light bulb. Thank you. Right? Right above their head. Even we associate light with understanding. And what's happening in this passage, what Jesus is saying is that people are supposed to see our good works and in those good works begin to comprehend something of the righteousness and wisdom and beauty of God and worship. They're supposed to see our good works and think not, how can I get in on that kind of community? Because that seems pretty special. Instead, they're supposed to see our good works and go, wait a minute, you mean God is like that? Wow! God is amazing. He's awesome. Do you understand the difference there? You know, lately we've been in this, uh, discussing this idea of worldview in our Sunday school class, and we've been contrasting the Christian worldview with alternate worldviews. Well, a couple of weeks back, we were talking about this idea of hedonism. And in case you weren't able to be there, hedonism refers to this philosophy that says that the point of life is simply to enjoy it. So whatever it is that makes you feel good, then do it. Now, if you're in that class, you might remember that Dr. Sproul made a very important distinction in how we ought to think about hedonism. He said that the true hedonist doesn't simply seek the maximum amount of pleasure, but the optimum amount of pleasure. The hedonist tries to minimize pain and optimize pleasure. The idea is that the hedonist doesn't simply seek the absolute greatest amount of pleasure possible, but the best amount of pleasure. And that's because the hedonist recognizes that there's actually a certain point where pleasure tends to cross a threshold and become painful. Again, I mentioned this, but you know, that, that pizza that you're eating on Friday night, it tastes really good after the first or second slice. But by the third slice, you might start to feel a little bloated and sick to your stomach. And I mean, you do that every Friday night over a long period of time, and you're going to start gaining weight and developing all these other type of health issues that make you uncomfortable. And at this point, the pizza is no longer pleasurable, right? It's painful. The hedonist recognizes this, or at least the sophisticated one does, and so they seek not the maximum amount of pleasure, but the optimal or the best amount of pleasure. I said that distinction matters because what it demonstrates is that people can pursue religion for essentially hedonistic reasons. In other words, what some people recognize is that there is greater pleasure or happiness to be had in a stable marriage, for instance, or a life that's free from alcohol or drug abuse and all that, than there is to be found in a wildly licentious lifestyle. So the reason they seek religion is because they see it as a vehicle for attaining that kind of a lifestyle. They find happiness in the picket fence and the one pet and the two and a half kids. And religion helps them get that. that. I was thinking of this recently when a, a pastor of a large church just a couple of hours north of here 
suddenly decided to abandon the faith. And among the reasons he listed for turning away from Christianity is that it didn't help his marriage. And he was, he was told Christianity would help him have a great marriage. Listen, that's just another type of hedonism. It's the kind that says, I don't want to try to simply maximize the pleasure I experience, since that's eventually going to cause me pain. Instead, I want to optimize it. In Christianity, it produces the optimal amount of pleasure. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, so you're saying that Christians aren't supposed to be happy. Is that what you're trying to say, Ryan, that we're not interested in being happy? And that's not what I'm trying to say. Again, I covered this in depth in Sunday school class, so I'm not going to try to belabor the point again, but there's a sense in which Christians are hedonists. And Pastor John Piper, you may have heard, coined this phrase, Christian hedonism. And I mentioned in class that I basically agree with how he uses that phrase. Christians are motivated by the desire for happiness. They, they, you really shouldn't get this confused. Contrary to how many Christians try to act, Christianity is not a religion that's entirely unmotivated by self-interest. Again, I know that may sound strange. We're often told as Christians that we need to mirror Christ and our selflessness and sacrificial love for others. And so it's not uncommon for Christians to think that righteousness means not being motivated by any self-interest whatsoever. What these Christians miss is that according to the book of Hebrews, even Christ endured the cross, quote, for the joy that was set before him. Just a chapter before that, the author of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible to please God without believing, A, that God exists, and B, that he rewards those who seek him. You have to understand this. This is the only fitting role for us as creatures. For us to say that we are unmotivated by self-interest in our obedience to God is for us to say that in some measure we are not the recipients in our relationship with God. We're the givers. And that flips the roles around. That puts God in our debt and it makes us his creditors. And that's not how it ever works with God. As creatures, we are always the debtor. And God is always the creditor. God is always the giver and we are always the receiver. Even in the worship that we give to God, we're never giving him anything above what he's already owed. And neither do we ever give him anything that is not already his. We simply cannot truly give anything to God. In the end, we receive. And this means that even when we sacrifice, even when we suffer, there's still a sense in which we do so because of the joy that's set before us. We may honor God by tithing our paycheck, for instance, but even then we do it, number one, out of an acknowledgement that God is the one who supplies us with our need, meaning we do it as an act of dependence, acknowledging that God is our provider and, and that we're trusting in his future provision. And then, and then number two, we do it because we simply love God. And it brings us to delight to demonstrate that love. You understand, even in the things we do in our faith that are hard and difficult, and there are most especially aspects of our faith that are hard and difficult, even then we're doing it because we're seeking an optimal kind of joy. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to be happy. I'm saying rather that we as Christians understand that the optimal source of happiness is to be found not in delighting in the gifts that God supplies, but in the giver. It's found in God himself. This is what John Piper means when he speaks of Christian hedonism. It's right there in the tagline for desiring God ministries. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. As creatures, we've been created for the glory of God, and the way that God is glorified in us is when we find our satisfaction, our happiness, our joy in Him. Now, are you listening here? Because this distinction, you have to grasp in order to understand what Paul's driving at in today's passage. The reason you become a Christian is not so that you can find joy in your marriage or simply because it'll help you get off drugs or something like that. It's not because it will simply give you a cleaner and more satisfying lifestyle. You become a Christian, rather, because only through a relationship with Jesus Christ 
Can you know God? Only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can you know God. And he's the real price. He's the real hope and object of our faith. You trace the scripture from beginning to end, and it's built around the central hope that one day we will see God. I mean, think about it. Even the summary of the law, Jesus said it was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. Sin is an expression of the fact that we do not love God. And Jesus dies for our sin so that being reconciled to God through the blood of the cross and being made alive in God by the Holy Spirit, we might rejoice in Him. That's what's being fixed in this creation. We're supposed to demonstrate the greatness of God by rejoicing in Him, and we don't, and this dishonors God. So God is redeeming the glory of His name by restoring the joy that we're supposed to have in Him. Do you understand the difference there? There are are a lot of people out there that seek God, not because they want God. They seek God, rather, because they want the gifts they think He'll give them. And this won't do. It's this sort of attitude that Jesus seems to be referring to in John 6, when the people follow Him the day after the feeding of the 5,000, and He tells them, He says, Truly, I truly, I say to you, you're seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I mean, you hear that? I mean, what are you talking about? Didn't they follow him because of the feeding of the 5,000? So aren't they coming to him because of the signs? And the answer is no. Again, the people don't seem to understand it. Again, they're blind to it. They can't see it. But what Jesus tries to explain to them with tremendous difficulty is that the point of the signs was him. The bread was supposed to point them to Jesus, so they would begin to look to him for their provision and joy, and instead they simply see Jesus as a free meal ticket, and that won't do. Jesus refuses to perform another miracle for them so long as that's what they're looking for, because that's not the point. It's not the bread that matters, it's the one who made the bread. Do you see what I mean when I say that this is all over the place? I mean, I could keep going, but it's really just all over the Bible. The object of our faith, the object of our hope, our joy, is not the gifts that God provides, but the giver that provides them. Just like bread is supposed to point to the maker of the bread, just like the righteousness of Christ's disciples is supposed to provide the light that causes people to give glory to God, so also is our joy to be fueled not by the gifts that God supplies, but rather in the one, that, the one who supplies them. Anything less than that is just idolatry, plain and simple. It's idolatry. Now, of course, I realize we're pretty far into this message. And I still haven't really touched on today's passage, but understand I do it so that you can actually get a sense of the significance of what Paul is doing here. You see, the Corinthians had missed this point. And if that hasn't come out in the letter just yet, uh, don't worry, it will, and soon. As soon as the very next passage, what we're going to discover is that the Corinthians had actually used their faith as a basis for boasting. I mentioned this some in last week's message, but the city of Corinth was a city that was enamored with the idea of social status and prestige. And the Corinthians, they simply see the church as another place to compete for honor and prestige. It'll soon become apparent that while they, 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 they cherish the knowledge that God has supplied them in Christ, and they do so perhaps less because it has brought them into a relationship with God and more because they see it as a superior system of philosophy, one that makes them better than their unbelieving counterparts. Later on in this letter, we'll see that some of them even see the spiritual gifts that God has supplied as a means of distinguishing themselves from other believers. It makes me think sort of of uh, Simon the Magician who tried to buy the Holy Spirit for money so he could use the gifts for a profit. That's sort of how the Corinthians are thinking about their gifts. Only they desire the Spirit not for financial increase, but for social increase, for the increase in status. Point being, they've got the order flipped around. 
They think that the point is the gifts, not the giver. Their focus is on how Jesus can improve their life right here, right now, instead of understanding that the reason they have been reconciled is so they can delight in God. And if you want to understand what the source of these quarrels are that we're about to get into, it's right here. It's rooted in the fact that the Corinthians are either rejoicing in the gifts or they're rejoicing in themselves, thinking that these gifts point to their superiority over others. Either way, it's idolatry. They're taking delight in something other than God. And as James points out in James 4, idolatry inevitably leads to conflict. That's because at the root of idolatry is a kind of selfishness. After all, if we're seeking to delight ourselves in God, then we learn to give, not to take, because this is how God wants us to express our faith in and love for Him. It's by loving others. So the worship of God inevitably leads to love, and with love comes harmony. Not so idolatry. As James says in James 4, 1 through 3, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Listen, that's exactly what's going on in Corinth. They're seeking God, but the reason they're seeking God is so they can have their selfish desires fulfilled. They have these idolatrous desires and that idolatry is expressing itself in division, in conflict. Friends, this is the world's way of thinking. In a sense, it says that the way to happiness is for you to be made much of. It comes as others think much of you, of how great you are. It comes as the universe revolves around you in order to fulfill your desires. Even religion, even certain expressions of Christianity are built around this concept. And that's why it's so hard to distinguish what the Bible actually teaches us about where our joy is supposed to come from and how we're supposed to relate to God's gifts. It's because this idolatry is so ingrained in our thinking that men will actually take the word of God and twist it to conform to his own man-made system of religion. The world does that whenever it tells you that Christ is the means of obtaining the idols you desire, the truly fulfilling ones. Or whenever it tells you that you should rejoice because of how special God thinks you are, how much He makes of you. Essentially, whether it comes in the form of outright paganism or whether it comes wearing religious clothes, what the world tells us is that happiness is found when you're at the center of the universe. The scripture flips that relationship on its head. And it says that happiness is found when you are not at the center. It says that the way to true and abiding joy is not in the universe making much of you, but in you making much of God. Even when it speaks of God displaying His love and grace towards you, the point is not that you would come away marveling at how special you are, but at how special God is, how great He is. This is how this whole system, actually, of self-emptying, you know, dynamic, how that all is compatible with us actually seeking our greatest joy. It's because the scripture tells us that the way to find true peace and gratitude and contentment and joy is by actually taking your eyes off of yourself and instead placing them entirely on God. So now with this in mind, I want you to read this passage with me one more time and I want you to pay close attention to how Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians. I can't, I, I can't say for sure he's trying to make a point here, but what I can say definitively is that his way of thinking is so dramatically different than that of the Corinthians. And I think you can see how. Verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can you see what's happening here? 
Again, I know we haven't gotten there just yet. I know we haven't had a chance to see this just yet. But the Corinthians' problem, it would seem, is that they're either rejoicing in the gifts themselves, making this the main source of their joy, or they're rejoicing in what they think the gifts say about them, how these gifts point to the superiority of the Corinthians over others. If you notice here, verse 5, Paul talks about the Corinthians being enriched in, quote, all speech and all knowledge. This is apparently what the Corinthians valued. They treasured wisdom and understanding. And again, the way they're treating this wisdom that they've received in Christ is to boast about it. They're acting like they've either figured it out themselves, or at the very least, they're now better than other people because God has revealed these truths to them instead of to someone else. But the point is that their joy is derived not by what this wisdom reveals to them about Christ, but what they think this wisdom says about them. Do you understand? They're viewing their relationship with Christ as if they're at the center. The gifts are there for their benefit. They're there for their glory. The Corinthians' joy is over what they think these gifts do and say about them. They're at the center. But how does Paul interpret these blessings? He doesn't nullify them. He doesn't act as if they're not gifts or that we shouldn't care about these things. But what he does do is direct these gifts toward their proper purpose. Just as the signs that Jesus performed were supposed to direct the people of Israel to Jesus, to love and worship Him, and just as the works that we do as Christ's disciples are supposed to help the world see the beauty and glory of God so that they can give Him praise, so also does Paul see the gifts as arrow markers which point not to the greatness of the Corinthians, but to the greatness of God. Look here, Paul hears news of this boasting by the Corinthians, and again, he doesn't ignore the gifts. Instead, he thanks God for them. Verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Paul hears this report, and he doesn't try to knock the Corinthians down a peg or two, like what you or I might try to do. He doesn't tell them, you know, you're not as special as you think you are. You're not as gifted as you think you are. You're actually pretty ordinary. He doesn't try to deflate the Corinthians' egos. Instead, he acknowledges their giftedness and thanks God for it. And that becomes the focus of each and every line of this Thanksgiving. Look at the passive verbs in this statement. Those actions describe what God has performed in the Corinthians. Verse 5, for instance, Paul notes that the Corinthians were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge. So he recalls how God enriched and blessed them. Verse 6, their testimony was confirmed by God through the giving of these gifts. So he recalls how God demonstrated his grace through the giving of the gifts. Verse 7, he points out how sufficiently God supplied them with these gifts, reminding them that they were not lacking in any spiritual gift as they await the revealing of the, their Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that part right there about awaiting the revealing of Jesus Christ, this should remind them what their hope is. And this whole idea of Christ's revealing points to the glory that Christ is to receive in that day, not the Corinthians. Christ is the one who has the glory, and our gift as his followers is to be able to behold his glory in that day, not be the object of glory. Verse 8, Paul observes that God will also sustain the Corinthians until the coming of Christ. And finally, verse 9, as if to punctuate his point, Paul simply states, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So who's the hero of this story? It's God. He's the one who called them into fellowship with Christ. It wasn't something they did themselves. And he is the one who is faithful to preserve them until the end. So how are the Corinthians supposed to interpret their gifts? They're supposed to interpret them not as a sign of their greatness, but of God's. They are to see the work of God among them and come away astonished, not by how superior they are to everyone else, but by how gracious and merciful God is in blessing them so richly. Now, I want you to notice something here because I think this is important. I mentioned this a moment ago, 
But I really want you to think about what Paul does here because this is going to set us up for our message next week. Once again, the Corinthians are enamored with the gifts that they've received in Christ. And by gifts, we're talking about both the spiritual gifts that they've received for the equipping of the body and the knowledge and understanding that they've received in Christ. They're enamored with these gifts. But Paul's approach is not to minimize the gifts. He doesn't minimize the gifts by telling them that they're not special or something like that. After all, if he did that, that would not only minimize the work of God, but it would also keep the Corinthians focused on themselves and their relative worth. It becomes about them. You know, well, you're not as gifted as you should be. Well, maybe if I were more gifted, then I'd be worthy of praise. He doesn't even deal with that. That's part of the problem. Their eyes are fixed on the wrong object. They're thinking about themselves instead of looking at God. And so instead of minimizing the gifts, Paul takes this fascination over the gifts and uses it as an opportunity to redirect the Corinthians' attention on the greatness and glory of God. Again, I hope you see the difference there. These things are subtle. Paul's approach to the Corinthians' preoccupation with themselves is not to tell them how insignificant they are, since after all, that keeps the discussion focused on them and their relative worth. Instead, he takes the focus off of them completely. In other words, he doesn't deal with their arrogance and self-centeredness by saying, stop being self-centered. Stop thinking about yourselves. Instead, he deals with the issue positively by directing their attention to God and saying, look at how wonderful God is. He takes their eyes off themselves completely. Listen, this is really the only way you can get someone to actually start delighting in God. You can't just tell them to delight in God. You need to show them why they should delight in God. If someone comes to me wrestling over assurance of salvation, for instance, because of the, maybe the lack of spiritual fruit in their life, I'll tell you, I may spend time showing them passages in the Scripture which describe the basis of our salvation and passages that show how we can know that we're forgiven even when we do sin. But if they're still struggling with assurance, after we take a look at those passages, you know where I begin to direct them? I begin to direct them to a study of the character of God. And do you know why I do that? I do that because the fruit they're looking for, this evidence to the fact that they have a relationship with God, that fruit doesn't come by telling them, the Bible says saved people love people. So start loving people. No. That fruit comes as they fall in love with God. After all, after all, again, what's the summary of the law? The greatest command is love the Lord your God. And Jesus says that the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, one's love for their neighbor is an expression of their love for God. So if a person does not love their neighbor, guess what it's a sign of? It's a sign of the root issue, which is that they do not love God. So if a person doesn't love their neighbor and they don't have this fruit in their life, what do you do? You teach them to love God. So when a person comes to me saying, I'm not sure if I'm saved, there's just so much sin in my life. <laughs> you don't resolve that issue by telling them to look at themselves. They're always going to struggle with salvation if they're looking at themselves. They're never going to have a reason to have confidence in their status before God if the basis of that status is what's looking them in the mirror. No, the way they gain that confidence is by staring into the face of God. You take their attention off of themselves and place it on God so that as they see God's mercy and faithfulness and love, they not only gain a confidence in the disposition and character of God towards sinners, they also gain an appreciation for and love of God, which then flows out of them into all these spiritual fruits that demonstrate their relationship with God. It's the same way in, in marriage counseling. A couple comes in for counseling and they're at each other's throats for all these different reasons. Again, what do you do? Well, what does James 4 say is the source of their conflict? It's their idolatry. They're at each other's throats because they do not have, they do not have because they don't ask, and when they ask, they do it to spend it on their pleasures. There's idolatry in their personal life and it's working their, its way up into their relationship. So how do you resolve that kind of a conflict? It may start by helping them to identify their idols. 
There may also be some doctrinal confusion that's stirring up these idols that may need to be straightened out. You know, deceptive thoughts about relationships that have been introduced by the world, and those may need to be dispelled. But after all of that, do you know what the final solution is? It's to teach them to love God. Again, their love for one another will increase as their idolatry decreases, and their idolatry decreases as their love for God increases. So what do you do? I mean, do you spend hours and hours getting them to think about all the nuances of their relationship? No, you actually take their eyes off of themselves for a bit and you start directing their focus on God. You get them to think more and more about how great and wonderful He is. And after they're to the point that their idolatry is uprooted and their love for God is restored, that's when you start talking about technique. That's when you start to talk about what they can do to avoid unnecessary conflict with improved communication and all that. Until they love God, none of that is going to be helpful for them. It isn't going to work because their very desires are corrupted by idolatry. But once they love God and out of that love have this natural concern both for His glory and for the good of the other person, and so then they'll not only want to work out their issues, but it'll start to come much, much more naturally. A couple will not be in conflict very long if they're both worshiping the same object. And I could go on, but hopefully you see my point. The way you deal with idolatry is not to simply point out the idol and say, stop worshiping that. It's by also pointing to God and saying, start worshiping that. In the words of Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24, we do not simply put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We put on the new self as well as we're renewed in the spirit of our minds. There have to be both elements. There can't just be a turn away from this. There has to be a turn to this as well. And apart from that second part, apart from a turning to God, which comes as a sinner becomes enamored with the person of God, any kind of change in the individual is going to be only temporary. They may be able to whitewash the tomb, right? And it'll sparkle for a moment. The problem is that it's still full of dead men's bones. They're still unclean on the inside. And so long as they're in that condition, that uncleanness is going to work its way up to the surface eventually. And the change is only temporary. So next week, we're going to come back to this passage. And the reason we're going to do that is because I want to take this opportunity, this thanksgiving, to actually direct your attention on God. Paul is recalling God's mercy here to the Corinthians, and whether it's intended or not, that focus on God's mercy should remind the Corinthians of what they ought to boast in. And it isn't their giftedness. Rather, it's the glory and greatness of God. I think if we're going to avoid or even escape from this same pattern of worldly thinking, then it ought to do the same for us. And so that's what I want us to do next week. I want us to spend time reflecting on why Paul is thankful to God. And I want us to do this so that we can come into the rest of this letter. And I'll just point out again, this is a letter which I said last week is probably going to step on our toes some. It's going to say some things that are probably going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to attack some of our idols. Well, this Thanksgiving can hopefully help us come into the rest of this letter, worshiping God and ready to receive the correction that Paul has to offer. In the meantime, I would encourage you to prepare for that message by asking yourself, what do I delight in? Is it in the gifts or is it in the giver? Is it in who you are or is it in who God is? I think it's not uncommon in our day and age, or really in any day and age, to take pleasure in ourselves, to delight in who we think we are, and to even use religion as a vehicle for satisfying that desire. The more classic expressions of this idea, of course, come in the form of, of self-righteousness and taking pleasure in your own obedience to God and what you think that obedience demonstrates about your worthiness to be accepted by God. However, not every expression of this idea takes that form. I, I think it's more than possible for people to view the love of God this way. Indeed, it would seem that 
Some even attempt to sell Christianity by saying it declares how much God thinks of us. Really, intentional or not, they appeal to your vanity. And they get you to take pleasure in how special you are that God would send His Son to die for you. For others, I think this kind of personal satisfaction can come, not from any kind of obedience that we think makes us worthy of God, but still from a kind of performance that we do for God. We think God has saved me by His grace, and and now God has a special role for me to play in His kingdom. And we take pleasure in that special role, instead of in the God who gives it. Now, to be clear here, I'm not saying that there's not a sense in which the Christian is special, both in God's affection for them and in the roles that he's given them to play in his kingdom. Again, I don't want to nullify the gifts of God. Paul recognizes, yes, the Corinthians are gifted. Yes, God does indeed have a special affection for them. And yes, he has equipped them for a particular role in his kingdom. So let's not overcorrect here. Rather, what I'm trying to say is that the point of these things is not that you would be impressed by how great you are. Because quite frankly, you're not great. These things are given to you as an expression of God's grace, meaning you're not worthy of them. And that's actually the whole point. The whole reason God blesses you in this way is not to demonstrate your greatness, but so that you could see His greatness. Like the gap between your unworthiness and God's lavishness in the love that He shows towards you, that's there so that you could look at God and marvel. You're supposed to go away saying to yourself, why would God love a wretch like me like that? What a great and wonderful God I serve. That's the whole point of these things. Not that you would be impressed by how great you are, but by how great God is. So I'd encourage you this week, spend some time thinking on this idea. Consider where the object of your happiness lies. Reflect on what you take delight in. Identify your idolatry so you can put it off. And the next week we'll come back to this passage and explore why we ought to delight in God instead. And hopefully this is going to help us put on the new self. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.